This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora and welcome. This is Garden of Sound brought to you with thanks to Mint Finance. Business loans made easy. It's a very speech-heavy show today as my guest is New Zealand music icon Paul Keane. There's not much Paul hasn't seen or done when it comes to New Zealand music. He was part of Toy Love alongside Chris Knox performing hundreds of shows for fans across New Zealand and Australia in the late 70s. But most notably, he's the bassist for The Bats alongside Robert Scott, Malcolm Grant and Kay Woodward. After close to 40 years at it, the Bats are now in the process of putting the finishing touches on their 10th album. And there's a fair amount of production now that Paul offers two proceedings. But what drives the man? And are there a few stones yet unturned on his musical journey? This is the Garden of Sound interview with Paul Keane on 96.9 Plains FM. Paul, I want to kick off uh, with music uh, at an early stage when you're a young person. When did music sort of come into your head and you realised, oh, wow, what's this? I came uh, from a musical family. My dad always played the piano at home, played by ear. He was kind of a bit of an entertainer and worked in radio too, actually. Um, and he had a lovely baritone voice. And um, I just remember being in church as a little uh, little lad, standing beside Dad, singing the hymns in his beautiful baritone voice, just bel- belting through. And I just thought, I want to sing like that. But I'm, <laughs> of course, my voice hadn't broken. And I thought, maybe I'll play bass. What about your, uh, what about your mum? My mum, she, she sang as well. She played the melodica occasionally <laughs> and various things. But both um, very creative, um, lovely, lovely people. But back then, uh, Dad, Dad um, went from broadcasting into teaching. So he was a primary school teacher for a good part of his life. What about brothers and sisters? Any other music Yeah, there? I've got four sisters in there. Um, in fact, three older sisters um, probably helped influence my musical um, education. Um, so was the house quite a noisy house? Yeah, I, I know that we had a lovely big old um, valve gram, uh, gramophone player that um, we'd, there'd be a few singles on that my sisters originally would have bought and um, my parents would have had sort of um, those um, classic sort of South Pacific <laughs> you know, uh, um, LPs, you know, the musicals and things like that. So what sort of stuff were your sisters listening to? Early days, it was probably um, more rock and roll. Um, I know Johnny Devlin was um, playing around the, at that time, and uh, as teenagers, they just um, loved the idea of going to what was called the Coca-Cola Bottlers Club on a Saturday morning, which my dad was an MC at. <laughs> it was a bit like what now, but on stage. Um, you know, from uh, what sort of years are we talking this, about? This here? is this is. Um, Probably late fifties, early sixties. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I'm yeah pretty young. I've born fifty four. So fantastic. But my first um, strong memory of music was um, driving home after we'd seen I think a Bill Haley and the Comets movie. Okay. And Dad was singing "Rock Around the Clock." Mum and Dad singing "Rock Around the Clock" and dancing as they're driving along. And here I was, like a little four year old, sitting between them and 
oh, <laughs> this this is great. So that that's my first strong memory of music. Another strong memory from back then is um, just um, Roy Orbison um, uh, just struck a chord with me. I like a song called Only the Lonely and Pretty Woman from way back when. Um, I, I was on the street at one stage and for some reason I started singing Only the Lonely in my head because I was alone early hours of the morning on the weekend on the street in um, Belfast where Dad was teaching. <laughs> and, yeah, so, and, and that was kind of like, ah, I'm hearing this music in my head and, you know, this is great. <laughs> very melodic and very guitar-oriented. Uh, I'm just wondering sort of what made you want to pick up uh, a musical instrument as opposed to sort of keep singing? Yeah, well, I think um, my parents were trying to push me into the singing side of things and they um, sent me off to Cathedral Grammar to be a chorister there for um, for a while. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, I, th- I think uh, that was expensive for them, and they asked me if I r- wanted to keep it up or whether I'd like to go to a co-ed school. I thought, I'd like to go to a co-ed school, please. So, um, yeah, that that um, path uh, stopped, but I certainly had some, a good training in, in voice back then. From that to Shirley Boys High, I was wanting to play music. My sister had a guitar. I'd pick up and pluck away, do ragery type things because that's all I could do never really taught an instrument mm-hmm. um not even at school at school um they were looking for people to play in the brass band play the um the tuba <laughs> i think it was a b-flat bass i think it was called um and i thought oh that's that bass stuff that you know that dad's dad's voice i can you know do that and also fiddling around with tgs basses around that time as well Simple things, uh, but uh, it was a time when there was, um, you know, that folk music thing was happening, mamas and papas, um, and and in Christchurch there was some a great folk club that I used to go to as well. And, uh, Is this the Christchurch folk club that still exists? Yes, and uh, th- at that stage they were in Bedford Row. I remember them being in Bedford Row and uh, go there on a, on a Sunday night. I think it was as as a young young guy. So yeah. there's a there's a folk explosion. Uh, when did sort of rock or the loud stuff sort of enter your sphere of influence? Probably not long after that actually, because um we we're, we're Talking, um, actually, I'll go back a little bit because in '66, my parents took the family over to England, uh, to UK, because Dad came out from Ireland when he was a kid, and um, when his mother died, she said, "Take the family back. There's the money." <laughs> you know, so we did, and we actually took a cruise ship over, which was pretty exciting. How long did that take? Uh, it was about. Eight weeks, I think, it was quite long, wow. and, and you're dropping off at all these different places along the way. So it was, uh, it was uh, back then that was probably to get a family over to England was probably equivalent of flying, and you get a holiday thrown in as well. So you know, that was fantastic. It's a long time for a, for a family or a, a young yeah. boy to to be on a boat. Yeah, but it was fun. There was a lot going on. There was movies and um, entertainment and, and we we were the entertainment at times too because, you know, kids could get up and do sketches and have fun and, you know, yeah. little, put on little shows. But I think um, when we were in Aden, which is um, just as you're going into that um, area where you go to the Suez Canal, uh, we stopped off there Um They've actually some terrorists. Uh, not they weren't called terrorists back then. I think they're rebels who just bombed a um, jeweler's store the day before we were there, and there was a, a lot of soldiers around, and there was a big aircraft carrier, the Eagle, in in the harbour, which we got to go on. But I, I 
digressing here considerably, but I bought a transistor radio <laughs> for a pound, I think it was, back then. And uh, when we got to England, that transistor radio found pirate radio stations, okay. Radio Caroline, mm-hmm. Radio Luxembourg, mm-hmm. Radio One, um, on boats out in, in, in the um, English Channel. So what sort of acts were, uh, were coming through on that, that radio? 66 is such a good year. You look back and there's so, so many great things going on. And through that pirate radio station, the, the likes of the Trogs being played. Trog Stones and Beatles, of course, but they were a bit more um, played on mainstream as well and on top of the pops and things like that. But the Trogs were something special for me because it felt kind of quite raw but, uh, and some of it was almost punky in a way, uh, but they also had some beautiful, me- melodious music, like Lovers Love All Around. Lovers All Around. Yeah, Lovers All Around, Indeed. which was later covered by other people, including Wet, by, uh, Wet, Wet, Wet. But this is Reg Presley's song from way back then, and Wild Thing was another one they did uh, really well, and probably the first one that was commercially successful of a, um, the composer, which wasn't Reg Presley. So would you consider the Trogs an influence? I think so, definitely. Um, just just that rawness and also the variety in their music. It wasn't just all one kind of genre or feel. They, they did the sensitive stuff. They did the, you know, um, real rock you know, growly type stuff as well. I actually got to see them at, at the Aranui um, way back. It must have been early eighties. I think they 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 were they were touring <laughs> around then. And what was but, the what was the venue? Um, it was um, Mackenzie's, I think it's known as now. It was um, and it had become a venue. Like a lot, a lot of those big lounge bar um, suburban pubs were great venues back then. Fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah, but um, they. Yeah, the guitarist had become too slick. <laughs> They'd lost that kind of rawness, but uh, yeah, they they still had it. Reg Reg was still singing pretty well. Fantastic, lovers all around.
This is the Garden of Sound interview with Paul Keane on Plains FM 96.9. Uh, we just listened to Lovers All Around. Um, we were just talking while the song was playing about the, uh, the the strings coming through. Was there something else you wanted to talk about? Um, I, I suppose that 60s, 1966 in particular uh, had a huge impression on me. As I grew up, I kind of thought, is this just the fact that um, it was a special time for me or was there something special about that era? <laughs> so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, how can I tell? I, I guess I'd do some research and find a lot of people that were around that same age probably well, thought, 66, wait, was it? <laughs> at, at the same time, if you're a football fan, then there you go, they won the World Cup as well. I yes. Mean, it was a massive time for the United Kingdom. We watched that uh, on TV in a big lounge in the Overseas Visitors Club in Earl's Court. <laughs> Fantastic. This yeah. is, so this is while you were on um, on that uh, well on that trip. Yeah, yeah. What was the first big gig? Earliest memorable gig that you got along to? Probably um, Town Hall opened in what was it seventy three nineteen seventy three, and they started bringing a lot of international acts into the year. So I got to see the likes of John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, and um, John McLaughlin as well with Marv Vishnu Orchestra, oh. and he actually had Jeff Beck playing guitar with them and that was pretty phenomenal and this was at the town hall yeah wow. yeah so um i remember those those gigs but i you know in terms of which was the first one i cannot remember that but fairport convention i saw them there and um also um bo diddley which was a really interesting one I, I, there's another performer i absolutely love because of his uh, he's got a really distinctive sort of uh, skiffly kind of sound, but you know, done electric in there and uh, beautiful, beautiful um, rhythmic thing going on with his music. What was the first big group that you got involved with? I was in a group doing kind of weird covers called the Basket Cases slash Detroit Hemorrhoids, and we end up seeing. Um, Where does that come from? <laughs> Detroit Hemorrhoids. Detroit Hemorrhoids is um, oh, just. Um, uh, the guy who kind of uh, um, pulled that together was an English guy that came out to New Zealand and he uh, met up with us and our group and played us lots of weird music that we'd never heard. Uh, and he just had a, uh, a weird idea of how to name things. <laughs> just generally had some kind of um, anal relationship. <laughs> I don't know what it was. He had another band called the Bell Motions, but he swears that it wasn't Bell Motions. It was Bell as in the B. Bell. <laughs> but um, in that um, uh, experience with um, that band, we actually played at the Mollet Street Market in Christchurch, uh, which was a, uh, a Sunday evening gig here over the 70s, early mm-hmm. 70s. Um, and the enemy were a band that came up from Dunedin to play there, and they were phenomenal. Um, Chris Knox uh, at, at the at the front was just so captivating, um, absolutely amazing performer. But also they were playing music that felt kind of like they were looking punk, but they were sounding like they were playing good songs, good pop songs, well composed songs, mm-hmm. and um, uh, we kind of got to know those guys and met up with them up in Auckland later on <clears throat> and enemy split up the bass player decided he had enough and they um, asked um, Jane Walker and myself if we'd join the band mm-hmm. in brief <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, 
uh, that was um, a, a pretty interesting time because suddenly we we had all these great songs that they had that we, we had to learn up. But at the same time, we were also writing new songs with them and uh, also peppering the set with um, some covers, including the Trogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's, there was a common love of 60s music with the with Chris Knox and the band. So, yeah. Uh, I imagine everything didn't always go swimmingly, um, especially, you know, you've played so many gigs over the years. Have you have ever had anything sort of absolutely completely fall apart on stage? Um, some nights with, with Chris because he um, is an epileptic, uh, so uh, he'd, he'd occasionally sort of get into a state where you think, Oh, you know, you 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 might be about to have a fit or something like that, and uh, he would pull back, uh, but that kind of meant that the band had to come forward, and we all sort of pulled pulled together a little bit stronger and and came forward and helped to take the pressure off Chris, yeah, you because know, mm-hmm. it was every night for Chris it was just like having to be up there and you know and and he couldn't stop himself from some really throwing himself into it fully and really performing and and pulling up props from here and there and you know beer crates and <laughs> and plastic big plastic bags you know like he would get himself inside a plastic rubbish bag and writhe around on the dance floor and push himself out of it all of the groups you have been involved with do you feel like you know you're the solid dependable one sort of keeping it all together yeah it it was a little interesting side story um when i was working with the students uh, uh, as as an orientation coordinator we uh, had a, a group called New Zealand Campus Arts Network which would come together from all the different unis and we would have orientation booking conferences and things like that and at one stage I think there were about 12 members on that from polytechs and unis from around New Zealand and um we kind of did a bit of a count up and found out nine of us were bass players. <laughs> so I think bass players may be organisers <laughs> in the sound. background. They probably thought of as oh, they've only got four strings to play. There's an easy job, so they can do something else. <laughs> Looking back to um, to young little Paul at Shirley Boys High School, uh, sort of uh, burgeoning music scene or musician at least. Any advice that you have for that young man, sort of going out into the world? I guess if you if you if you're young, you kind of uh, you don't really think too much about um, uh, how you're going to to um, attain a, a livelihood or a living from music. For me, I, I, I wished I'd I had a little bit more um, uh, support and advice. From other musicians, uh, rather than just oh, you you don't want to work full time at that. That's that's just that's a, a hobby job because <laughs> that that was the attitude in New Zealand back then. How much has that changed? If you want to live in New Zealand, it's pretty hard. Okay, <laughs> um, because you're if you want to, especially if you want to um, play original music. You've got to be one of the chosen few that get um, the the airplay on commercial radio, and, and I think the commercial radio is is key to it. And the funny thing about that is that sometimes these bands can be writing fantastic music, original stuff, and if they don't get picked up and get repeat play on radio, then nobody's going to know them. Okay, well, let's look at somebody like Marlon Williams, for example, uh, 2018 Silver Scroll winner. Um, International recognition, um, fantastic musician and performer, but I dare say you probably wouldn't hear him on commercial radio. How does how does 
he work. Yeah, I know. And 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 I suppose for uh, for me and the music I was listening to when I was young, there wasn't much of it played on commercial radio either back then. So you don't have to rely on it, but like if you want to make a living from it, I think for Marlon, he's seen the need to get overseas, and that's what. That, that's what we identified with with Toy Love. We wanted to get overseas, and it didn't really happen. We got to Australia, and that's where it stopped. So, in getting over to to Australia with with Toy Love, so this was the uh, this was you and Chris and Jane Walker, and, Jane, and who was the other member of the Mike band? Mike Dooley and Alec Bathgate. Okay, so yeah. tell me a little more about the Australian experience. We had kind of. Um, got picked up in New Zealand by Warners and they released um, a single um, because they had a, a, a big fan working in, uh, in Terry Terence Hogan working in their, um, in their dispatch unit, I think he was. He'd seen um, The Enemy and he also saw Toy Love play and he thought, wow, this is great. This, this, deserves, this music deserves to be recorded and released. And he managed to convince the uh, the manager of Warner's at that time to do that. They they released um, uh, our first single, did a, a a wee bit of a limited run. That all sold out quite quickly, and we went into the top twenty first week. Uh, but then they ran out of stock, <laughs> and of course, it always takes time to get that stock out. So uh, the week after, it's gone from the charts. And to try and pull that back into the charts again after that original. That's horrible. <clears throat> that has happened so many times. <laughs> not having faith, I suppose, in, in, in the product. Not not having the, the backing. It's a, a New Zealand artist that's from other companies used to um, um, churning out international acts into the New Zealand market. So they're not used to. Uh, releasing their own product, I guess it is. So a little bit nervous from their behalf, and uh, yeah, so that was a big shame. But we we um, yeah we ended up going, uh, recording three singles and an album and doing um, so many videos and demos and things like that. Toured New Zealand a lot. We did those um, those big lounge bars uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturdays, and and this is seventy nine. Uh, Got across to Australia because that was our next step towards going to England, where we all wanted to go. And um, gig after gig after gig, every night of the week, uh, we did something like 480 gigs in 18, might have been 20 months. Yeah, and that was too much. Uh, um, it just pretty much decided that at, at, uh, a, a, a tour in New Zealand, that that was enough. We've, we were exhausted were not enough time to sit back and, and who was responsible for managing or putting that schedule together uh, it was actually uh, uh, Michael Browning <laughs> had a lot to do with it and he was um, ex-manager of ACDC <laughs> and he had his own little label uh, set up over in Australia that and yeah in the major labels you know they they wanted to work the band hard earn your dues um, unfortunately they just worked us way too hard <laughs> yeah but it's trying to make a living, I suppose, with it at the time. In Australia, it was a real struggle for the first four months. We were there for about six months. But towards the tail of that, it was starting to pick up. We came back and did another tour of New Zealand and split up here. Uh, and the interesting thing was, um, we thought no more of it. That was it. 
Toy Love's over. Bats formed not long after. We thought, don't want to go down that track. I'm going to stop you right there. <laughs> Being a music show, it is time for some music. Uh, I do normally ask about sort of a favourite track or favourite artist, but now is the perfect time to play something by Toy Love. Toy Love, Have yeah. you got a, uh, a song in particular that you think would be? Yeah, there's, um, there's the predictable ones, uh, which I sort of try to steer clear of, but this is one of the singles. This is Don't Ask Me. Uh, which yeah, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the bass on this. Actually, like I've, I don't know where it came from. You know, sometimes these things just come out of the blue. Garden of Sound interview with Paul Keane on 96.9 Plains FM. Thanks so much for being with us today. Garden of Sound is sponsored by Mint Finance. They've been around since 2014 offering finance to businesses of all sizes through secured and unsecured loans, starting out at just $5,000 on terms of up to five years 
years. Now, if you've got a great idea and you just need the finance to see it through to fruition, then get in touch with Mint Finance today. You can call them on 0800 666023. It's 0800 666023. Or you can visit mintfinance.co.nz. That's mintfinance.co.nz. This is the Garden of Sound interview with Paul Keane on Plains FM 96.9. I want to talk about uh, music writing and the production thereof um and i'd like at this point to sort of like launch into into the bats um uh, so four of you uh, it's what 37 years or something years the it, bats. it would be about that i think it was the it, according to our records it's um the very final night of 1982 was our first gig although bob's recently sent us a list of absolutely everything <laughs> which is interesting all our gigs and there's one in there that are party before that which well, I didn't, you don't, don't I, remember or no, just didn't quite count as I, I, an official I can't remember it but um, yeah we, we we evolved out of um, a thing with Kay me and Bob called Percy Taiwan <laughs> band and then uh, figured we needed a decent drummer very much associated with the Dunedin sound um, but you were a sort of like a Christchurch, was that sort of like the nucleus? Yeah, the Dunedin sounds a bit of a myth actually, that whole thing, because um, Tell me. Uh, Flying Nun uh, started in Christchurch, Pin Group were a Christchurch band, Clean at that time were uh, living in, and recording in Christchurch, uh, and I think the myth of uh, the Dunedin sound thing came out of uh, the fact that the, one of the early... Um, releases they did was a, a double EP of, of four Dunedin bands, uh, Stones, Verlaine's, Sneaky Feelings and The Chills. And they all actually came to Christchurch to record. <laughs> so um, I think it, it might have come from some review in Chicago uh, saying that uh, something about, you know, like Flying Nun, it's like um, these bands from Dunedin, it's like there's nothing but bands there. <laughs> you know, so... Uh, yeah, they're all just playing to each other. <laughs> so, in terms of uh, putting the songs together, especially for your for your first album for the Bats, yep. um, who was uh, who was responsible for the writing duties? Uh, Robert Scott is is the writer. I mean, he he is just such a powerhouse writer. He just writes songs constantly. And I think early days of the bats, he said he's got something like a thousand songs in, in his, uh, you know, on on cassettes and things like that. And and he just keeps tuning them out. But he'll present um, his song to us in a in a kind of a raw form. Send us a demo with, a, you know, him playing on acoustic and singing, and we'll apply our parts to it. So um, and often that happens in practices or you know when we get together or just sitting around and uh, often in studios as well there's a moment where you're tuned up and you're just testing things out and you fall into something that sounds really cool and then suddenly Bob's got a song (laughs) how many Bats albums we're up to our tenth at the moment. We've just, just we've recorded our tenth, and it hasn't been released yet. All right. So even back in the early days, where was that recording being done? Uh, very first recordings were done at, at Arnie Van Bussel's Night Shift Studio. You know, okay. um, he had a, a like a demo deal. We could go in and <laughs> record for something like fifty dollars, and I think that's what. Um, the clean did with uh, Tally Ho <laughs> for fifty dollars. They they got they got a a, a a single out of it that did, did really well, and 
on the charts in New Zealand. Bats, uh, yeah, did it with Arnie Van Bussell um, on the desk and engineering for us. And, um, you know, because of my experience with Toy Love, I kind of felt like I knew a little bit about, <laughs> you know, the process and um, always um, had done live mixing as well. So I felt like um, I'll, I'll give advice about how I feel it should be. But we'd, generally when it came to mixing, Back in those days, you had manual desks, so everyone would take a little turn at pushing up things and pulling down things, and uh, yeah, Arnie would generally be tweaking bits and pieces in between. So yeah, that that was how that's how the process worked back then, uh, early days. Then that's our first two EPs were done like that, by night, and here is music for the fireside. And then we um, headed over to England ah. in '86. Okay. Because that went, that dream of we need to get to England. <laughs> Don't worry about sort of trying to make it in New Do Zealand. Do you think this harks back to the eight-week trip that you took in 1966 for you? Mm, possibly, but I know that we're we're all keen on uh, on getting over to Europe. I mean, you know, I'd promised Kay that we would <laughs> would have a trip overseas, and um, yeah, and, and it was kind of a bit of like a working holiday, I suppose, or a performing holiday. <laughs> so Kay is your partner, yeah, but she's also part of the Bats, yeah, yeah. and also Mini Snap, which is another project. Yes, you've it, got on with, with her songs. Yeah, oh, yeah. Fantastic. Um, how does that work in a band situation and in a in a life situation? Um, oh, I I should explain that. Yeah, for quite a bit of that time, Bob was getting other projects happening um clean would split up and reform and he was the bass player in the clean writing songs for clean as well and then at one stage he also had another band he shifted to dunedin to live down there and he started a group called the magic heads up down there which are a fantastic band with jane sinnett um uh, singing on that one um so when Bob was off doing other projects, we were twiddling our thumbs. <laughs> what can we do? We are like um, we want to play, and um, I, I started um, doing some instrumentals. I, I'm not really a songwriter, but and then um, you know, Kay, Kay offered a song in there, and oh my God, you you can write songs too, you know. So um, it, it evolved into really Kay's songs, yeah. Which yeah, we've released a couple of EPs and a, an album, yeah. Going back to um, uh, being in Europe or England in the in the mid-80s, um, who were your contemporaries at that time? Were there sort of any other New Zealand, Australian bands who had sort of made the made the move or who were yeah. touring around? Yeah, Chills actually had been over just prior to us. I think we um, headed over um, in 86. Uh, they'd been there in 85. And um, we met up with um, the person that was helping to manage the McKeewe, Craig Taylor, over the, over in, in uh, London, and uh, he helped put a, a, a tour together for us um, of of Europe. The same time that um, Chernobyl blew up, okay. <laughs> we were all about ready to go over and do our, our tour, very short one, but with some. Um, Alex Chilton, Screaming Blue Messiahs, and the House Martins were these dates we were doing in various cities in Germany mostly. I think it was all Germany actually. Yeah, and we did a few shows up in Scotland. And uh, when we were in Glasgow, we uh, ended up staying with a journalist, New Zealand journalist friend who lived over there, and um, a Scottish guy. 
and uh, he had a home studio there. And this was um, uh, great. We, we, he said, look, help yourselves, I'm off to work, help yourselves, do some recording if you want. So this was a, a first opportunity for us to do our own thing, you know, like, rather than having a, an engineer sort of putting his bit in or whatever. It was, it was us, just the four of us, and, and uh, that worked really well from from my experience doing live mixing and a little bit of you know knowledge of of recording i i sort of a steep learning curve for me i i, I pretty much learned how to to record the band <laughs> and we did um you know more acoustic type numbers in that stage and this that was the start of um, our first album daddy's highway what is your production style i really think um getting everybody comfortable and performing at once rather than sort of trying to layer stuff up. So have the band performing. So you'd have to give a degree of separation in really cleverly mic'd instruments. And I think also the it's important for the, the bands to be able to hear each other because if you can't hear each other, then you kind of feel like you're wandering around in the dark to a degree and trying to play it safe and you're not sparking off. So to find a comfortable environment where you can virtually play live and capture that sparkle that's there with the live band interacting and there's something else that happens with it when when it's all going well it's like there's another the ghost piano there you know there's the there's another thing going on it's real magic and it's not it's not just us individually sort of thinking hey I'm the I'm the one that's making this happen or whatever. There's no ego involved. It's kind of like just doing our bit. Yeah, you know, I don't think any of us considered ourselves as great musicians technically, but like just when it all works together, it just yeah, you know, it's magic. <laughs> is there anyone out there at the moment uh, that you think is doing brilliant stuff, at least in a sort of production capacity, whether it's a producer or maybe an act that you've heard recently that just sounds Immaculate. Uh, there's one that we've been listening to lately that I really love. That is kind of along that sort of line of things, and that's King Creosote, <laughs> which is a Scottish performer. Uh, his 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 music. Absolutely love love what he does. Is there a particular track? Oh God, I'm terrible with names. We just kind of <laughs> listen to the albums, <laughs> and very rarely because there's no vinyl around, you know, um, refer to the track list. <laughs> well, I'm going to open it up to you. We could do a left or right. Um, should we hear something from the bats, or should we share some King Creosote with the audience? Oh, one or the other. Mm. Oh, let's go bats. Fantastic. <laughs> just in a... case people have never heard the bats out there before. <laughs> Indeed, well, with 10 yeah. albums coming up. Um, is there a specific track we should uh, share? I think um, Made Up in Blues, the tried and true. And we recorded this over in London, actually, uh, on that 1986 tour. It was number of the first Flying Nun UK release as an EP. Yeah. Thanks to Craig Taylor. <laughs>
This is the Gardner Sound interview with Paul Keane on Plains FM 96.9. Um, do you have a best musical memory? Because it's all about best and worst. Um, or perhaps a most rewarding project, something that's really given you personal satisfaction across the entirety of your long and illustrious musical career? I think um, we got whipped off by um, when Flying Nun uh, started uh, getting a little bit under under finance they were getting big and they didn't have enough money they uh, got um, helped out by mushroom they kind of helped bought out a chunk of a flying nun and um, the management at that time wanted us to take a quantum leap in production so they got us uh, with American producers and big budgets and big studios and we were so disappointed <laughs> it took the sparkle out of the sound um, after that process with two albums, we we made the mistake of doing two like that and getting hugely into debt because, you know, we sold a lot, but um, those big studios and producers cost a lot too. <laughs> so I think we were getting up to around close to the 15,000 sales in the States. So at that stage, the label we were on in the States, which was a, another kind of independent uh, mammoth records, uh, we're under the umbrella of Atlantic. So we actually got invited along to that, that big um, building in LA, which is, uh, is it the Columbia building or something the like Capitol? that? Capital. Capital, Capital. yeah, yeah. And uh, got to meet the head of um, Atlantic Records and uh, he said, oh, you guys are doing really well, you know, like very close to um, eclipsing that point where we'll, we'll take over. And... Um, that tied in with various things like touring with Radiohead over there and uh, having children on the road, <laughs> which you know, all got a bit much. And <clears throat> to be honest, we were feeling like we were losing control. So we pulled the plug to a degree on it at that stage. We thought, we need to get back to New Zealand. We need to regroup. We've got to think about our children's education and uh, and where, they go, you know, where we're going to have his home. And then we ended up recording back in New Zealand. And, and for me, getting back in control, back at Night Shift Studio, we did an, an album called Couchmaster. And that has got so many fantastic songs on it. And things that were happening in the studio and we were experimenting and playing around. And oh, it's just, you know, that's, that's, that's one of my highlights in, in the musical career. Yeah. The feeling that I'm getting is that you're a lover of music and you're a lover of great sounds and you're a lover of originality and, you know, you're doing it for the purest reasons. If you had chosen to sort of keep at it over in the States and been really selfish and so on, would things have progressed further? Possibly, but in terms of where they were going to progress, whether it was going to be a happy place that we wanted to be in, I don't know. Uh, There's something about us wanting to you know, be grounded with living in New Zealand, which is a fantastic place to live. And I think a little bit of that just stress of being on the road with kids and nannies, you know, like uh, it was a little bit much. And we didn't want to leave our kids behind. <laughs> yeah. And we weren't really at that stage where we could have all those great comforts. And in fact, what we were seeing, we were Radiohead, which had just gone ballistic with Creep. Yeah, on the MTV. Which is funny, so this is Pablo Honey that they they put out, yeah? Yeah, MTV. They were fantastic live. They were really humming. We we got invited to go on that tour with by a group called Ballet. It was their tour. Ballet were a US band. 
And then they said, oh, yeah, we've got this other band uh, called Radiohead coming along as well. And then overnight, they kind of became big through MTV. And um, we, we, that was that was good. That was a good experience for us because they were the ones that were drawing a big crowd. But um, we had some of our audience there too. We're on first, then Radiohead, and then Bally. Poor Bally suffered a little bit, unfortunately. <laughs> Such is life. Yeah. But, um, um, yeah, it's, it's, so um, we, we saw Radiohead um, touring around in these buses and looking, you know, like they weren't having a wonderful life. <laughs> um uh, the sleep, you know, that you sleep on these buses with these coffin-like bunks, and uh, we we tried a little bit of that ourselves and just hated it. <laughs> we didn't want that. That wasn't what we wanted to do. Exactly. And I think a lot of people. That's where the start, drugs start kicking in. I mean, people to try and cope with that pressure of touring and you know, like um, not enough sleep. You know, ah, oh, you need some of this. You'll get you by. <laughs> and then suddenly, oops. That's not good. Looking ahead, um, you talked about the 10th Bats album. Yeah. Uh, it's recorded? We have, yep. We've actually gone back to uh, doing it ourselves after um, we've did uh, three collaborations in between there, uh, between Catchmaster with other other engineers slash co-producers. <laughs> um uh, and we thought, well, let's just do this back like we did Daddy's Highway and and get off to a, a, a place in the country where we can set up some gear and just be ourselves. Is there going to be a tour? Yeah, definitely. Um, at the moment, uh, we've got uh, the States, a lot of people in the States wanting us to go over and play over there. But uh, we're not too sure about the political climate over there at the moment. And, and social climate, and it's pretty, pretty scary there. What's going on? But um, definitely, New Zealand and Australia uh, at this stage we'll be doing. But uh, the, these things take a long time to to mix and and uh, get released. And then the vinyl, the vinyl's always going to take about another five or six months, you know, from finish date. So, what's your feeling on the resurgence of vinyl in the world? Ah. Uh, I think it's. I don't like it to be honest. I think um, it, it is. Uh, there's a lot of people um, who are doing it because they've seen vinyl going for a lot of money on eBay, whatever, and think, oh, this is a good investment. So unfortunately, I think a, uh, a lot of people are thinking it's an investment. There's a few purists out there that love vinyl, but it's not a, an easy medium, and it scratches and. It's got static and makes noises. No, I'm very yeah. surprised to hear yeah. that from you. I thought you would be somebody who would appreciate it. No, I mean, there's a certain aspect of it, but um, I've, I get really pissed off when I hear static. <laughs> you know, you, you've, you're playing a, a, you know, a vinyl, you know, and you've got to do all these things to stop this weird noises, these weird noises going on. So tell me, what do you record at? 48, 96 or up to 192? No, 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 48. 4824. <laughs> yeah. I mean, our music's not, it, it's not like um, really quiet, sensitive violins and things like that. So Indeed, but the yeah. sound of the red beach bass, <laughs> surely. Um, is there anyone that you haven't worked with as yet um, that you think, you know, that'd be really cool to maybe get into the studio with, whether it's a performer or maybe a writer or maybe even, maybe even a producer? Well, look, producer-wise, we've 
I've often loved the idea of us getting a, a really great producer in there to, to put a little bit of a twist on us that might give us maybe more of a contemporary sort of sound. I don't know. but Because um, I, I don't know that I can achieve that. I can maybe mimic what's going on, but um, I've, I've got my limitations with what I can do. I, you know, I, can, I, I like playing around with getting a nice image stereo-wise in, in the sound. I think that's quite important. But beyond that, in terms of you know, totally um, grabbing a song and pulling it apart and pushing it back together again, I don't think um, I'm, I'm capable of doing that. Um, and it'd be nice to have a, a producer that could, do that i don't honestly know who if anyone's interested out there that that likes the bats and see the potential but what i would love to see what i'd love love to see uh some people covering some of bob's songs because um he's such a great songwriter i think he's not appreciated by new zealand music industry that well this interview is playing out uh post uh the announcement of the 2019 silver scroll winner so at uh, at the stage of recording it, uh, they haven't been announced. You're familiar with the with the top five. Have you got any sort of inkling of who you would like to see walking away with it? Um, I would probably pick Aldous Harding uh, myself. That's my own personal taste. I, I think uh, with Designer, she's actually uh, produced an album that's probably a lot more accessible than her previous work. Um, I, I absolutely love Party and some of her earlier works myself, and I find the character and them, uh, yeah, it just just excites me. Uh, and when I first heard Designer, I thought, ah, oh, it's a little bit watered down. But now, the more repeat listenings, it's, it's much more accessible for a bigger audience, which um, I think she deserves the recognition. And two years in a row, why not? Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Paul, uh, it's been. And education and fantastic to have you on the show. So thank you so much for coming along today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I love talking. (laughs) We only had time for three tracks today, but Paul wanted me to pass on that he's also a lover of the Beach Boys, Django Reinhardt, Neil Young, Can, Led Zeppelin, Velvet Underground, John Cale, and Fripp and Eno, as well as Aldous Harding. You can find tracks from all of those artists on Paul's bespoke Garden of Sound webpage. Just go to gardenofsound.nz and click his photo. From there, you can take a squeeze at what the Bats and Paul's other projects are up to, as well as listen to most of the tracks we talked about today. This has been Garden of Sound, presented by Mint Finance. Business loans made easy. Until next week, keep well, keep listening, and keep playing. Hey there, dark.